what I'd like to see is a nominee that uh, is different in every respect from those. That is to say, a non-East Coaster, a non-Harvard Law School graduate, and a non-Court of Appeals judge, because the court needs different perspectives. There's nobody on the court that has any experience in elective office. Nobody has served in the legislature. Uh, and these are perspectives that I think are seriously lacking from their deliberations. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. We're glad you could be with us today. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Today's show is sponsored by Clio and Landy Insurance. Well, the big news in the legal world this week has been Justice David Souter's announcement that he would be retiring from the Supreme Court at the end of this year's term in June. Well, at the age of 69 and after 18 years on the Supreme Court, Justice Souter's departure leaves the two oldest judges and the most liberal, Justice Stevens and Justice Ginsburg, still on the bench. The burning question lies, who will President Obama appoint to fill Justice Souter's vacancy? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to reflect on Justice Souter's career, look at the potential list of replacements and the overall effect this might have on the Supreme Court, with uh, perhaps the future of the Supreme Court hanging on this decision. Joining us today will be two guests. Uh, First of them is Professor Daniel J. Metter, James Monroe Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Virginia School of Law. Professor Metter started his career in 1954-55. He was a law clerk to Justice Hugo L. Black on the Supreme Court. He went on to practice law in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, in 1957, joined the law faculty at the University of Virginia, where he's spent most of his career. In 1977, 78, and 1979, he was an assistant attorney general in the U.S. Department of Justice, heading a then newly created Office for Improvements in the Administration of Justice, the office that developed the legislation to create the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Welcome to the show, Professor Metter. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Bob, our next guest is Kermit Roosevelt. He's the professor of law in the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Professor Roosevelt works in a diverse range of fields, focusing on constitutional law and conflict of laws. His book, The Myth of Judicial Activism, Making Sense of Supreme Court Decisions, which was from Yale University Press in 2006, his book sets out standards by which citizens can determine whether the Supreme Court is abusing its authority. He has published in the Virginia Law Review, the Michigan Law Review, and the Columbia Law Review, among others. And he was also law clerk under Justice David H. Souter from 1999 to 2000. Welcome to the show, Professor Roosevelt. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Well, Professor Roosevelt, since you directly worked for uh, Justice Souter, were you surprised to hear that he was retiring? I I was surprised. I wasn't shocked. Um, it, It had been no secret that there were aspects of the job he didn't like. He certainly preferred spending time in New Hampshire to spending time in Washington. Um, but I, I expected him to stay on a little bit longer. You know, it's, it's very rare for a justice to voluntarily relinquish the kind of power and status 
that a seat on the Supreme Court gives them. Um, and I think it, it definitely tells us something about Justice Souter that he was willing, if not eager, to walk away from that. Professor Metter, how about you? What, what was your reaction when you heard the news? Well, I, I'm I regret to see him leaving the court, but I want to congratulate him on retiring at his age and in good health. That is all too rare. Most of the others cling to office as long as possible, even to states of debilitation. Uh, Potter Stewart did this. Uh, Lewis Powell retired while he was still in good health. Uh, Byron White. But, but there are very few. And I think it's an excellent uh, example to set, but I'm afraid no others will follow it anytime soon. Well, let's look back at Justice Souter's career. Uh, Professor Roosevelt, what do you see as the, as the highlights of his legal career? Well, if I if I had to put it in just a couple of words, I think that Justice Souter started out his career on the Supreme Court resisting change, and he ended it in the same way. Um, he wasn't someone who came to the Supreme Court with an agenda to transform the law, but um, very soon after he, he was appointed, the question of whether Roe v. Wade would be overturned, whether the constitutional protection for abortion would be taken away. Um, and Souter, to many people's surprise, resisted that attempt to overturn precedent. And uh, so at the beginning of his career, he's playing this conservative role in terms of preserving existing case law. And then at the end of his career, um, in some of these executive power cases, he was resisting the very extreme claims of, of presidential power that the Bush administration had made. So I think those are, are really nice bookends to his career. Well, it's been interesting that he has been characterized in the news media this week as having sort of come around to the liberal wing of the court. Uh, is that a fair characterization? I think that the movement is really much more on the part of the court and, and on the part of the Republican Party than on the part of Justice Souter. You know, the, the Supreme Court has gotten a lot more conservative over the past 20 or 30 years. And, you know, Justice Souter would not have been a liberal on the Warren court. He might, he wouldn't have looked so liberal on the Burger court. He looks more liberal now because the other justices are more conservative. And of course, the same is, is very much true of the Republican Party, which has moved a lot to the right over the past, say, 30 years. Professor Metter, what's your take on that? Well, I, I agree substantially with that. Uh, I do think that the movement has been more with the court than, than him. One thing that I liked about the Suda appointment is that he brought something to the court that is not otherwise there now, and that is experience in the state court system. Uh, Sandra O'Connor had that, but nobody else has it now, and he's the only one. And I think that perspective is useful to have there. Well, I'm no, I, I'm no uh, Supreme Court scholar, but I've, I've been reading the uh, Jeffrey Tubin's book, The Nine, and, and he, he kind of portrays Justice Souter as having taken uh, maybe a third route. I mean, he's not really with the conservative branch or the, the liberal branch. And I think uh, just uh, Professor Roosevelt, you kind of alluded to this. He's, he's someone who has a strong uh, adherence to the concept of stare decisis. Is that your observation? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, if you look at um, the joint opinion that he, he worked on in Casey, um, a lot of that is, in fact, based on stare decisis considerations. So, you know, Justice Souter comes to the Supreme Court, there's an existing body of case law, and I think he saw his task as trying to make sense of and preserve that case law and interpret it as best he could, but not to make changes in a liberal direction or, or a conservative direction. What do you see as his uh, his 
singular or perhaps two biggest cases that he, he dealt with. You think that Planned Parenthood versus Casey falls into that category? Yeah, I think Casey would have to be one of them. And Bush versus Gore? Well, Bush versus Gore, you know, he uh, he didn't have the didn't have the outcome that he wanted. I mean, I, I thought that his dissent made some very good points. If I were to pick another case, you know, for for the influence that Justice Souter has had, it would probably be an establishment clause case because Justice Souter did have fairly strong views on separation between organized religion and the government. Um, and so I think he, he made some contributions in that area of law. I think in one case he voted against allowing prayer at a high school graduation ceremony. Yes, he did. I think that Kennedy wrote the main opinion there, but I think that maybe there's a there's a notable suitor concurrence um, which takes on Justice Scalia's historical analysis. And I think methodologically, that's one of the distinctive things about Souter. So, you know, he votes frequently in controversial cases with the liberal bloc, but he's different from them in the amount of attention that he pays to history. And I think he was really the only one of the, the four more usual liberal justices um, who was willing to take on the originalists, Scalia and Thomas, on the question, you know, what does the history really show? Professor Metter, where do you, where do you uh, cast uh, Justice Souter's uh, influential opinions? Well, I'm no Souter scholar. I've, I've not read every one of his opinions, but I followed him from a distance from the outside, so to speak. And my impression of him was he was always thoughtful. That's, he gave the impression of being thoughtful, careful, analytical, uh, as, as uh, was just said, uh, attention to precedent and history and so on. Uh, and he had a, a struck me as a balanced approach to things, a sort of careful, judgmental approach. But that's my perception from the outside, as I say, without being a, a in-depth pseudo scholar. Well, there certainly are some people who would uh, say that, uh, from uh, President Bush's point of view, uh, the appointment of Justice Souter, the nomination of Justice Souter was a, was a mistake, and I and I think uh, he even uh, uh, made a remark uh, to that uh, effect at some point uh, after he was no longer in office. What what are the lessons uh, for for President Obama here? Uh, does does the experience uh, of this outgoing justice at all suggest what might happen with respect to the next nomination? Uh, Professor Roosevelt, your thoughts on that? Well, I think having been having been burned by a stealth candidate, it's unlikely that people will will go that way again. Um, you know, I, I think what happened with the Souter appointment was that uh, you know they they had this guy. There was nothing objectionable in his background. He had no controversial paper trail, and for some reason, some people in the Bush administration thought that he would nonetheless turn out to be a movement conservative if they put him on the court. Um, I don't know why they thought that. And, I, you know, I think the truth is they were just wrong about that. If you, if you look carefully at Souter's confirmation hearings, what he said there, um, it all suggested that he would be fairly moderate, that he would um, generally try to adhere to and support precedent. Um, certainly some people had misapprehensions about how he was going to vote. Um, I think that his confirmation hearings, his testimony there actually provides a pretty clear um, roadmap that he actually followed. So I think, you know, Obama is, is probably not going to appoint someone 
um, without knowing what his or her views are, just in the hopes that the person has hidden political leanings that will, will work out in his favor. My recollection is that an important factor in the Souter nomination was Senator Warren Rudman, who pressed his case. That, that's what I recall about it. But I agree that uh, they are going to want to know more about a, a, nom- a prospective nominee now than apparently they knew about Souter. Well, let's take a turn for a moment here and, and talk about President Obama. Uh, he, this is his first opportunity to nominate a Supreme Court justice, given this vacancy. First, before we start talking about names, what do you think he's going to be looking for in a replacement? Well, I would say this. Uh, I, I don't know what he will be looking for, but I, I can say what I hope he'll be looking for, and that is to restore some balance to the court in terms of geography, educational background, and uh, life experiences. Right now, seven of the nine justices are from the East Coast, which is a little skewed. Six of the nine are graduates of the Harvard Law School, and all of them came off the Court of Appeals. What I'd like to see is a nominee that uh, is different in every respect from those. That is to say, a non-East Coaster, a non-Harvard Law School graduate, and a non-Court of Appeals judge, because the court needs different perspectives. There's nobody on the court that has any experience in elective office. Nobody has served in the legislature. Uh, And these are perspectives that I think are seriously lacking from their deliberations. I agree with that. I think, you know, in, in terms of getting good work product from the court, it's actually very important to have a diversity of viewpoints, a diversity of experiences. Um, and I would add to that, I think it, it would be nice to have a female nominee um, because, you know, for exactly the same reason, women have different life experiences than men. Women bring a different perspective to the court. I think there's a high degree of likelihood that's what we'll have. Yeah, I mean, is there is there really little doubt about that. I mean, is there even a likelihood that that uh, that a male might be nominated at this point? I think it's a near second deal to be a woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, what about, I mean, you talk about a, a different kind of a background for a justice and, and uh, note that note that the everybody on the court now came off uh, the Court of Appeals uh, what what's what would be the appropriate background that you'd like to see? I mean, there was talk this week uh, of Al Gore as a potential candidate who's not even a, a lawyer. Uh, does does is being even, even being a lawyer a, a prerequisite to being on the Supreme Court? I believe. Yeah, Vanderbilt Law School, I think. Uh, well, let me say this. Let me just give you a, a statistic or two before 1970. In the, the uh, 30 years before 1970, I checked this out, from 1940 to 1970, there served on the Supreme Court four former U.S. senators, three former state governors, five attorneys general, a secretary of the Treasury, secretary of labor, a chairman of the SEC. Now, not one of the judges now has that background. In fact, in the 40 years since 1970, uh, not any justice has had a background of that sort. And I view that as a serious uh, lack uh, in, in the court's deliberations. Yes, I think you know experience in in government outside the judiciary would be very important. Um, or you know, if we're talking about judicial experience, judicial experience in the state system, just to be able to bring to the court uh, an understanding of how these different government um, entities work. 
I think that's very important. Now, as far as being a lawyer, experience, I think is especially important because so much of the court's work is on interpreting statutes, and to know how the legislative process works, I think, helps in that decision making. Yes, yes, very much. And uh, I just I just fact check this as we were talking because I wasn't sure myself, but yes, Al Gore did go to law school. He didn't graduate from law school. Uh, but if if somebody has not served on the bench, are they going to have the track record that's going to enable them uh, to to get uh, through the vetting process? Uh, isn't part of the reason that uh, judicial uh, former the judges are are nominated is, is that they do have a track record, uh, both positive and negative, that uh, that can be pointed to and and that can provide some level of. Uh, uh, of, uh, of predictability, I guess, about what they're going to do when they get on the Supreme Court. It can be a handicap, too. You remember in the Bork confirmation proceedings, how he was taken to task for decisions he well, made absolutely. in the Court of Appeal. But, 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 but it at least provides ways. some basis for making a decision, whereas if you take somebody right out of, say, you know, a, a trial lawyer who's been, who's been uh, practicing at a firm or, or, uh, or whatever context... Uh, uh, you 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 don't have that uh, basis for deciding what's going to happen when they get on the bench. I think that's what propelled these appointments of recent years. Exactly what you're saying that they have something they can look at, which is an unfortunate uh, pattern. I think, and how you break out of that is another matter. But if you look back across history, there've been numerous polls over the years as to who the great justices were, and most of the great justices, according to these polls did not have prior judicial experience. Uh, so it's not really a prerequisite to effective functioning on the bench and indeed being a great judge. But I think uh, if you look at it, uh, Justice Frankfurter used to take the position that there should not be any hearings at all on a nomination, that you should judge a, a nominee based on his the totality of his life's experiences, what he'd done, what he'd said, uh, that kind of thing. I think you can, if you get into that, you can form a judgment pretty well about a person and what his outlook is, what his approach is, his judgment, his yeah, guidance. Most people are likely to have enough of a track record to give you, you know, some some guidance of where they stand or how they think about legal issues. And, you know, of course, given that we do have confirmation hearings, there's there's also plenty of opportunity to ask them questions. Um, I mean, the, the fact that the way the confirmation process now works, for some reason, the, the, the Senate doesn't appear to be allowed to get answers to the, the most important questions. That's That's a separate problem. Well, what about this concept of, of a stealth candidate? Uh, is is it ever really possible to know what somebody's going to do when they get on the bench? I mean, history has taught otherwise, uh, hasn't it? Well, I think it would be unfortunate if we thought we really knew what he would do. The, uh, the idea of being a judge is to judge cases as they come along uh, under the law as it then is and under the facts of the case. So the idea of pinning somebody down to positions that he will take forever on the bench is, is misguided, I think. Do you think we're going to be looking at a younger justice here? Are we going to see a justice that has a different race than, than uh, is currently on the court? What do you think are, are some of the uh, kind of, I say, features or qualifications or, or other types of uh, differences that you're going to be seeing when, when we get nominations from President Obama? I think youth is a, is a consideration, and it's it's an interesting one because I don't think that, that anyone thinks that, you know, younger people are better judges. 
or that you need a younger perspective, although maybe there is something to be said for that. The interesting thing about youth is that it's, it's a strategic consideration by the president trying to maximize his influence. So, you know, you think you have someone who's going to give you results that you like politically. You want that person to be there as long as possible. So you put a, you know, a young judge on the court um, hoping that they'll, they'll serve for 30 or maybe even 40 years. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, the, the result of that is that you get these very long-serving justices who lag quite far behind uh, public opinion sometimes as public opinion evolves. Yeah, that consideration about youth is a good argument against life tenure. All right, we're going to uh, stop right here for a short break, but stay with us. We're going to be back in just a few moments to continue our discussion of the retirement of Justice Souter and uh, possibilities uh, for replacing him. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Right from the beginning, you know, I knew I was important. Can you say that about the insurance agency helping to protect your legal practice? Lawyers like Rebecca Brody are confident working with the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, knowing they have the best professional liability insurance coverage for the best possible price. It is about customer service. I think that's what we like to promote in our business. You know, we did have some kind of specialty questions. We did have some concerns. It was really great, and it really felt like if I'm that well taken care of, it made it possible for me to go and take care of, you know, take care of my business and take care of my clients. Give us a call at 800-336-5422 or visit our website at landy.com. That's L-A-N-D-Y dot com. 60 years of experience. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to bring back Professor Daniel J. Metter, James Monroe Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Virginia School of Law and Kermit Roosevelt, Professor of Law at University of Pennsylvania Law School, and Justice Souter's former law clerk. Well, before we, uh, again, get into the, the individual names that we're uh, considering for, that President Obama will be considering for the nomination, do you think that this replacement has the ability to swing uh, the court in any fashion? Well, one of the qualities that I think should be looked for uh, is the nominee's ability to work collegially with the colleagues on the court and to, the ability to work through to consensus, uh, not only uh, prevailing, but perhaps bringing others along or at least modifying their positions. I think that's a very important point, and you'd like to think the person on the court uh, has that kind of ability rather than a, a loner or a highly controversial kind of character. I, I agree with that. Um, you get a lot of change on the Supreme Court if you can if you can replace a liberal with a conservative or a conservative with a liberal, and Obama doesn't really have the chance to do that because Justice Souter usually voted with the liberal bloc in the controversial cases. Um, but he might be able to appoint someone who could, you know, not not through his or her vote, but through her influence on other justices, um, maybe create consensus in some cases where you, you wouldn't have had it otherwise. 
um, you know, maybe persuade one of the conservative justices in, in some cases where someone else wouldn't have been able to. Well, there's been a lot of names tossed about over the last few weeks. Um, and uh, Professor Matter, I wonder whether whether any stand out to you as as uh, can, as nominees uh, that you'd like to see uh, brought forward. My first reaction is that I think I would like to see a nominee whose name has never been mentioned, uh, and one who uh, fits what I, I would like to see, and that is someone who's had some experience in public life, maybe in high elective office, legislative experience, something of that sort, who comes from somewhere else in the country beyond the Appalachian Mountains, uh, in the West, Midwest, South, whatever, uh, and someone who is, has a different educational background from the majority of those who are there now. Other than that, no name that's been mentioned stands out in my mind that I'm prepared to uh, campaign for. Is there somebody you'd suggest? I mean, is there somebody who fits your description who you think would be a good candidate for the president to consider? Well, I guess I'm embarrassed to say I do not have a candidate. <laughs> I'm hoping the team around the president will identify these people if they exercise a talent search out beyond the usual names that are mentioned. Uh, I'm sure there are people out there, but I've not undertaken to discover them. But I, so I don't have a candidate. Professor Roosevelt, Professor Matter said it, that you know there's a, a type of a campaign that goes on to become a Supreme Court justice. Can you describe that? Well, I mean, there's not that that much that a person can really do to try to become a Supreme Court justice. It's not an, an office that you can run for, really. I mean, what all, all you can do, I think, is put yourself in a position where you're a, a, a plausible pick. And then I think it really sort of comes down to timing um, and, and having a president who, for some reason, finds you appealing. You there certainly are persons out there who undertake to campaign for a particular person. There's a lot of inside maneuvering going on in behalf of various prospective nominees. I don't know that the nominees themselves actively campaign, so to speak, but there are efforts made on behalf of various ones. Yes, yes. You've got people campaigning for you, certainly. Well, Professor Roosevelt, what, where do you see that the uh, nominations coming down? Do you have some names that you think that uh, might show up? Well, I, I don't know anything more than, than the people who give you the, the, the standard names. You know, people are saying uh, Diane Wood, Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, um, Lee Sears, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Georgia, would be a very interesting pick. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have a personal favorite myself. Well, I, mean, I can mention this. The one um, of the many names mentioned, uh, one that fits uh, the sort of criteria I would like to see in a nominee is Janet Napolitano. She is from the West, has been Attorney General of the State, Governor of the State, and now in the Cabinet, not a Harvard Law School graduate. There's nothing wrong with the Harvard Law School, but you don't need six of them on the Supreme Court. You need an educational diversity just as you need geographical diversity and so on. That's one of the names that fits uh, my conception of the type of nominee we ought to have. Yeah, she would be very interesting. There's been interesting discussion over the last few days uh, among some of the blogs and, and legal commenters that uh, women face particular hurdles in, in the nomination process that men don't always face. I mean, there has been uh, speculation about the uh, you know the, the sexual preferences of some of the people on the short list. There's been comments about the weight and appearance about some of, of some of the uh, some of the shortlisters. Uh, do you think that's the case? I mean, do you think women are somehow held to a different standard uh, than men in the nomination process? And, and is that fair, if so? I really cannot speak to that. I, of course, I hope it's not the case, but I really don't know. 
to answer your question. Yeah, I, I would say we don't really have enough experience with it to make a, a generalization about that, but, but certainly it's unfair if it, if it is occurring. When we look at, at those names, what type of a backlash or response do you think you're going to see from either the conservatives or the liberals for uh, the names that you mentioned, Professor Roosevelt? Well, I think probably no matter who Obama picks, you're going to see conservatives claiming that this is a liberal judicial activist. Um, you know, that's, that's just what they say. I think that's true, that uh, from all indications, it looks as though uh, the Republicans are likely to try to bring that out in some fashion, but their power is greatly diminished now just because of numbers, so I don't know how that will play out. You have a new ranking member on the uh, Judiciary Committee, Senator Sessions, uh, and he is one likely not, not to let a nominee get by easily, I'm thinking. Do you think that uh, President Obama will will ask uh, Justice Souter for a recommendation? I would doubt it seriously. Uh, it's customary for outgoing justices uh, to have nothing to say about their placements. It has happened in history, but it's not usual. I wouldn't expect it. No, I, w I wouldn't expect that either. And obviously no uh, recommendations from the other justices on the Supreme Court. I wouldn't think so. Taft was good at making recommendations, but most of them don't. I, I would be surprised. Well, when who does kind of front these names to President Obama? I mean, other than, you know, obviously the Justice Department goes out and does a search and, and they look, but who is it that has influence? Or that, you know, Are they legislators? Are they governors? Or, or people that he's friends with? Or anybody sending him text messages to his Blackberry to, to give him names? I wouldn't be surprised if all of that isn't happening, but according to a story in the Washington Post this morning, there's a small group, unidentified except for uh, Craig, the White House counsel, uh, who's working hard on this process. It doesn't say who they are, but I'm sure that uh, it's a group in the White House and maybe a few outside and close advisors. But uh, nobody knows, really, who does all of this. Uh, and it's not clear to me. The Justice Department does not seem to be having much of a role in this, which is a little different from uh, a lot of history where the Attorney General and the Department of Justice has had uh, a part to play. But I don't get any indication that that's true this time. Well, and of course, President Obama has shown himself to be a, a someone who has a mind of his own on, a, on legal issues in particular, given his background. Uh, and I he think probably has a big some... difference this time. The president himself will be intimately involved with this and will know what he's doing, I think. Yeah, I would expect Obama to be playing a pretty large role in this. You know, it's, it's certainly an area that he's interested in. He's got expertise, and it's a very significant decision. We are uh, at about the end of our time, but before we conclude the program, we like to give our guests an opportunity to share their final thoughts with us. Uh, and uh, as I as I uh, mentioned to you before we started the program, if you'd also like to tell our listeners uh, how they can find you or get in touch with you, you're welcome to do that uh, as well. So, Professor Metter, let's start with you and ask you to kind of wrap up with your final thoughts on this topic. Well, I guess my final thought is something I've already said, that I hope the nominee will be a person who does not come off the Court of Appeals, who's had substantial experience uh, in public life, uh, possibly as an elected official or legislator, uh, and who does not come from the East Coast. I think we need to restore balance on the court geographically and in, in life experiences and background. So that, that's my main thought about it. All right. And your people can find you through the uh, University of Virginia website, is that right? The University of Virginia Law School website, yes. Okay. And uh, Professor Roosevelt, your concluding thoughts. 
Well, I'm, I'm sorry to see Justice Souter go. Um, I, I think he was a very good justice. Um, I think that, you know, he's, he's made a choice and he's certainly earned the right to, uh, to go back to New Hampshire if that's what he wants. And so I'm, I'm, I'm happy for him to that extent. I, I do think it's a loss to the court. But I have great confidence in Obama as, as someone selecting the next justice. Um, and I, I expect that I'll be happy with his nominee. And our listeners can find you how, Professor Roosevelt? Through the University of Pennsylvania Law School website. Well, Bob, that about does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. To our listeners, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows on www.legaltalknetwork.com. And we are, of course, on iTunes as well. Let me uh, add uh, add, uh, thanks to uh, both of these guests for being with us today. Really good discussion and uh, appreciate their time. Bob, we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.